And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he went himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great And strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, 
You shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. All those knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you have spoken. In times past through the prophets and now to us, even in them, through our great prophet Jesus Christ. May we hear him in this your word. And may we receive from him today through the voice of this feeble messenger, that which you would have us to hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones once told a a story of uh, preaching in in a local church as a guest preacher, and when he got there before the service, the the elders asked him if he would visit someone with them that afternoon. A, a man who had previously in the church been an important Sunday school teacher, a man who inspired the youth to, to live for Christ, and yet had been in a, a state of despair and depression for years and had seemed to lose that zeal that he'd had. And uh, I, I'm not even certain from the story if the man attended church anymore. So Lloyd-Jones said, sure, and and after the service, they went to visit this man. They sat down with him in the living room, and uh, this is a bit of a paraphrase, but uh, Lloyd-Jones asked the man to tell his story. How how long have you been depressed like this, and and can you explain how you feel? Lloyd-Jones had been a medical doctor before he was a pastor, and so he could ask that question and really have information regardless of whether it was medical or or psychological or spiritual. And so he asks the question, the man says, well, my stomach is constantly twisted and messed up. I have constant headaches and I'm just so, so far from God, so depressed. Lloyd-Jones said, how long has this been going on? Since 1915. Well, that's a very precise date. Uh, can, you, can you tell me what led to this? Oh, yes. Well, the, the war broke out in 1914. I joined the Navy. They put me on a submarine. They transferred the submarine to the Mediterranean. Everything was fine. And then one day while we were submersed, there was a bump. We hit a mine. And down we sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean. And I've been like this ever since. Lloyd-Jones said, I'm very interested to hear the rest of your story. Well, well, that's it. I joined the Navy. They put me on a submarine. They transferred us to the Mediterranean. Everything was fine. Bump. Down we sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean. And I've been like this ever since. Lloyd-Jones took him through this multiple times. I want to hear the rest of your story. Well, that's it. Finally, the man said, there's nothing more to tell. We sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean. 
And Lloyd-Jones said, are you still down there? (laughs) Of course there's more to the story, isn't there? Something else happened. They're sitting in a living room. They're not at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Something else happened in that story. Maybe someone came down. Maybe they lifted the sub up. Something happened. At some point, this man's head broke through the surface of the Mediterranean. He was put onto a boat. He was transferred to a hospital. He was sent home. But you know, as Louis Jones left with the elders of that church that day, he said, he's still down there. It's a wonderful story to bring us back to where we left off last week. Because it illustrates a couple of things that we talked about last week. In this sermon in our series on respectable sins, sins that we often just ignore in the church and don't confront in ourselves or other believers, we look at depression and despair. And the first thing we qualified last week is that depression is a hard sin to confront because it's not only sin, it's also often a medical condition. And who can doubt that a man who has constant stomach and head issues that date from a time when he sunk to the bottom of the Mediterranean, well, yeah, that's a a medical condition, isn't it? And clearly his doctors weren't able at that point to figure out how to address it. But certainly there should be sympathy to the man. Who of us wouldn't be depressed Some of you have lived with various forms of your stomach or your head almost incessantly hurting in various ways, or you have loved ones that do, and that is depressing. That's a medical thing. It's not not sin in and of itself, is it? But one of the things I think this story also illustrates is that even when it starts as not a sin, as a medical thing, our response to it can be sinful. Our response to whatever is in our life, whether it's anxiety or depression or or some other medical issue or some other providence or circumstance, if we act as if there has been no salvation, that's what that man was doing, wasn't he? There had been a very literal salvation. Maybe it was a scuba diver coming down with a I don't know, it was 1915, so I I don't know. I don't know how they got him out of the Mediterranean. Why is the man not dead on the bottom? But some salvation happened. And he was living as if it hadn't. And how perfect an analogy that is for us, isn't it? How often in depression and despair... Do we get to the point where we live as if the Son of God had not come down and taken our hand and pulled us out of the depths at the cost of his own life? (coughs) To deny that, to not have that flavor your whole life, Surely is a sin. 
So we're looking at the sin of depression. It's hard. We need a lot of sympathy to the depressed person. But we also need to be clear that there's sin involved often. And where there is sin, we need to confront it. We looked at several uh, causes of the sin of depression last week. Not, not an exhaustive list, but just some of the things we can look for in our own lives to try to assess if we're falling into the sin of depression. How did we get there? Uh, one of these was exhaustion. That's acknowledging the medical side, isn't it? You don't have to have a medical condition to just uh, physically be exhausted and have that affect your emotions as well. Or pride. You puff yourself up so that when you do fall, it's not just a little discouragement. It's a pit of despair because you've placed yourself on such a high pinnacle. The fall nearly crushes you. Or disappointment, disappointment with others. I, I got up on this pinnacle doing such wonderful things. Why couldn't you all support me? Why couldn't you all see how wonderful I was? Why couldn't you come alongside me and do this, what I think would have been the perfect thing to do? Or maybe it's, maybe it's disappointment with God. God, how could your providence not see how wonderful my plan was? And of course, there's also fear. Last week, I, I said I, I wanted to spend today then thinking about four, uh, four cures for spiritual depression. I've changed my mind about the word. The problem with me saying four cures for spiritual depression is that you might hear me saying, here's the pill, take it, and you'll never be depressed again. And of course, we know that isn't the way it works. Sanctification, the, the growing in holiness in any area of our lives, is a process that God works in us, not with a magic pill. Here's the pill for lying, I'll never lie again. Here's the, the pill for uh, um, coveting, I'll never covet again. Here's the pill for depression. I'll never be depressed. That's what we want. But that's not how God has chosen for us to live and grow in our relationship with him. So cure might give the wrong impression. So I'm going to use the word corrective. When you get corrective lenses, it doesn't magically fix your eyes. You got to keep using the corrective every day, don't you? To see properly. And, and so let's think about correctives, things that we can pursue to grow, to advance out of depression, to battle it every day. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you, God is calling you to fight depression until you see him face to face. But how do you fight it? Well, these correctives might help. So let's think about, I think I have four here this morning. The first corrective to spiritual depression we should consider is that we need to think more about him who suffered than we think about our own suffering. 
We need to think more about him who suffered than about our own suffering. Notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying deny that you suffer. That's the overcorrective that we so often fall into in the church. We, we act like everything's right in the world, nothing's wrong. We, we stop throwing, uh, throwing's the wrong word, uh, having funerals. And instead we have the celebration of life where we pretend like I'm not really hurt and missing that person. And where we pretend like death isn't an enemy and something over which to grieve. That's an overcorrective. So it's okay to celebrate the life as long as we're also grieving the loss. But we have this tendency, and we do that in a lot of areas of the Christian life. We go too far. So I'm I'm not telling you if you're depressed, ignore, pretend like you have nothing over which to be depressed or discouraged or sorrowful. But think more of him who suffered than about your suffering. Robert Murray McShane put it like this. For every look at self, take ten looks at your Savior. Yeah, acknowledge your sin, but look at your Savior more. Acknowledge your sorrow, but realize he has known it. He has known it. He has borne your grief. He has carried your sorrow. I don't want to uh, draw a, a false connection to our text this morning. This was originally, this whole sermon was originally the application of last week's sermon. And I split it up. So we're not maybe going to spend as much time in the text as we did last week. But I, I do think we have to ask the question, and this goes back to those pronouns of Elijah's that we talked about with his pride last week. The I, I, I. Where are his thoughts about the God who is being rejected? Where are his thoughts about God's prophets are murdered? He isn't thinking much about the attack that's been going on against God. It's about what's been going on against him, his own suffering. And that's a mistake. Last week, Deb walked up to me as, as she was planning on uh, playing guitar for us this morning and, and uh, helping me choose the music. And she walked up and she said after the service, next week we should sing... Are you weary? Are you languid? And I, I laughed because I already had part of the sermon written and I already had a quote from that hymn in here and it was a joyful moment of us thinking of the same hymn. We chose not to do it because it's a little difficult musically 
and you're welcome now that we don't have a musician at all. Um, but I did put some of the words on the front of your bulletin because I think this is exactly the point that the hymn writer is getting at. The hymn begins, Are you weary? Are you languid? Are you sore distressed? We could throw in there, Are you depressed and despairing? Come to me, says one, and coming be at rest. And then before the second verse begins, the hymn writer seems to think, when I'm in the midst of my distress, maybe it feels like I'm down here so deep, how could I ever find my way? How could I ever crawl out of this pit and know which direction to go in this darkness? And so verse 2 of the hymn picks up with that kind of thought. How do I get there? I'm in the darkness of despair. Has he marks to lead me to him? If he be my guide, are are there signposts in the darkness so I know how to find him? (coughs) In his feet and hands are wound prints and his side. Well, maybe we, we don't want in our despair to look at suffering. So, so maybe we think, well, surely he has a, a crown with a diadem on it that could lead me to him. Verse 3 continues, a crown, yes, in surety, but of thorns. When we're in despair and depression, I think that hymn writer is absolutely right. So is McShane. We need to think of him who has suffered more than we think of our own suffering. We need to do this because this is what will draw us out of ourselves and towards hope. We need to do this because what he has suffered proportionately is infinitely more than I have. Think of that. What has he suffered? We we could walk through. We we could start just physically as a, a man. What did he suffer? Well, he at some point before the age of 30 buried his loving adoptive father. Pretty much everyone agrees about that, even though it's not written in the text. Joseph is just gone. He did not have a home. Birds have nests, foxes have lairs, but the Son of Man did not have a place to call his home. He was hated and he was despised. He was put to a false, unjust, and illegal trial. How many feel that way in our nation Oh, what a wonderful opportunity to say Jesus knew what that was like. It was illegal. It's in the middle of the night. On a holy day. It was illegal. He was beaten and whipped within one whipping of death. He was abandoned by all his friends. And that's just if we think of the kind of, we could maybe say, the more earthly end of his sufferings. Even there, I think most of us are hard-pressed to say, yeah, I've known worse. But that's not where it ended, is it? 
In his hands and feet are nail prints. And there's a spear scar on his side in glory right now. Because he hung on that cross. And as he hung on that cross, for each person who put their faith in him in all of history, he bore the wrath and curse of God against sin. He bore the fullness of hell. What would take an an eternity for any of us to bear for ourselves, he bore for each of his children in the space of several hours. The very creation shook and the sun grew dark. So great was his suffering. Are you weary? Are you depressed? Look more at him who suffered than at your own suffering. It'll put it in perspective, won't it? It's real, but it's not infinite. Secondly, put your hope in God. Now, I know that sounds more general and sounds like it includes the previous point, but it's a progression. It's a progression. If you look at the suffering Savior and only get as far as the cross or the grave, you're not understanding him as Isaiah or the gospel writers present Christ. If you only get And by the way, those of you involved yesterday morning in our book group, I I hadn't read the chapter or known where some of you were going to go with your discussion when I wrote this sermon. If we only get as far as the cross, we don't understand the cross, do we? We understand the cross when we gaze into an empty tomb. When we hear the angel say, he is not here, he is risen. We need to remember that angel more often. In fact, remember what his question was right before that one? Not a bad one to to remind yourself of and ask yourself when you're depressed. Why are you crying? He's not here. He's risen. And later an angel said, why are you just staring into space? He's gone to the Father's right hand. He's going to come again. Put your hope in God. That's where the Holy Spirit actually brings us in what most pastors consider the greatest depression counseling text in the Bible. We've read it two weeks in a row now. We sang it, well, we sang the earlier part of it this morning, but a little further on, Bill read it with us twice this morning. Psalm 42, verses 5, and then repeated closely in verse 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So many pastors and counselors 
refer to this as the text of preaching to yourself. When you're depressed, when you're despairing, preach to your soul. Why? Why am I like this? It's not a why that says let's deny it. It's a why that brings us proportion again, isn't it? Why am I so despairing if, if my hope is in God? My despair comes when my hope is in circumstances, people, my health, my adequacy or inadequacy. That's where despair comes in. Put your hope in God for the help of his countenance. Again, why are you weeping? He's not here. He's risen. Now, now those of you who have heard me preach for seven years now won't be surprised by the following. When you see the word countenance or face, when you hear the psalmist sometimes depressed say, God, you're hiding your countenance, you're hiding your face, or when you hear the positive here preaching to yourself for the help of his countenance, we are being pushed to think of the blessing of God in the benediction of the priest. That's what the sons of Korah have in their mind when they say, put your hope in God for the help of his countenance. They are reflecting and pushing themselves to think of when they last were at corporate worship and right before they exited and had fellowship time or whatever they did at the tabernacle, the priest raised his hands and declared, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Lift up his countenance, that is, the Lord smile upon you so that you're filled with peace. And our translations, when they put may in there, are doing us a disservice. When I raise my hands as an ordained minister and say those words or others like it from Scripture, when the priest did it in the Old Testament, it wasn't a wishful thinking. Boy, have a good week, and I hope that God smiles at you. And it's not a prayer. God, please smile on them. Numbers makes that clear itself right there where that priestly benediction is giving, given. Numbers 20, uh, chapter 6, verse 27, immediately God declares that if you are a child of God, you are sent out of worship with the very real and certain blessing of God. He says, in this way, as the priest declares these words, I set my name on my children and bless them. So at the end of the worship service, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
when I raise my hands, nothing about me. Nothing about my hands. I'm just a messenger. But the message is good if you are in Christ. The message is good. Each week, God sends you into a week of trial and tribulation and hardship and thorns, and he sends you into it blessed. Really blessed. Despite circumstances. That's what the sons of Korah are saying. Why am I distressed? God's countenance is smiling on me as a father to his children. Now, we don't know if this psalm was written before or after Elijah. I suspect it was probably written before his day, but we don't know that for sure. But that doesn't give him an excuse to not preach to himself. God has... I don't want to get ahead of myself to the next point, but, but God has fed him by the mouth of ravens through widows when others were starving, sent fire down from heaven at response to his prayer, sent rain down from heaven as a response to his prayer. God has shown a smiling face on this prophet. Many others died, martyrs for Christ. But Elijah had the smiling face of God for three and a half years of others' suffering. If anyone has no excuse in Israel, it's Elijah. Put your hope in God. We need to preach to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves like the sons of Korah. Soul, hope in God for his countenance. And we can even update the the thought a little bit. His countenance is shining on me in Christ. And I am, I am blessed by God. In Christ. And in him I have hope for both now and the future. Despite circumstances and the feelings of my heart. For my life is hidden with Christ above. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 3. Why am I so downcast, O my soul? Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. Third, take note of God's provision. Uh, One of the things that we are so bad at as humans is looking at all the negatives And forgetting the positives. I remember when we, uh, in terms of our announcement time, started emphasizing announcements, prayer requests, and praises. And Ron Phillips said, if we were even half honest, we'd be here with praises all afternoon. 
problem is we, we don't think like that, do we? Elijah didn't think like that. I've already mentioned it, so I'm not going to belabor it too much, but who else? Raise your hands if during a time of drought, ravens have brought you food. What, what does the New Testament say? Christ himself? A lot of, a lot of widows starved in Israel. But Elijah didn't. And the widows he stayed with didn't for three and a half years. And now even as he's running and griping and God, just kill me, what's the point? He wakes up to an angel tapping his shoulder. Raise your hand if an angel has given you bread. Apparently miraculous bread because the next time he eats it, it sustains him for 40 days and nights of traveling through the wilderness to a mountain. But Elijah doesn't remember any of this. I alone am left and they want to kill me. Do you think maybe the God that's taking time to give you food might keep you alive? But we're all guilty of this, aren't we? Um, This isn't about bashing Elijah. This is how our hearts work. And especially when we're depressed, we struggle to remember to give thanks and to think about the blessings God has put in our lives. A roof over our heads. Food in our refrigerator. Refrigerators. I bet a couple of you have like a freezer or something plus a refrigerator, don't you? Because you have so much food. And if some people in the world could see that, and most people in the history of the world could see that, they would be appalled. And we get annoyed when it breaks down for 12 hours. Or the electricity goes out for a few minutes. Or we only have one bathroom for a couple of days while the other one gets fixed. Or Fourth. Fourth. Corrective. Get to work. Now what I don't mean here is just get over it. You're depressed, just get over it. Get back to work. Like that Bob Newhart skit from the 80s where he's a psychologist and, and he says, uh, you know, I can cure any problem you have for $5 in five minutes. After the first five minutes, my counseling's free. So the person starts sharing her issues and he gives his solution. Stop it! You don't want to be crazy, do you? Just stop it. No, that's not helpful. It's not helpful when we're depressed. And I hope no one here has, the, has done whatever the equivalent to that is to a fellow believer or, or an unbeliever, for that matter, in depression. But without denying and just saying get over it, 
we should get to work. God's challenging Elijah with that. What are you doing here, Elijah? Seems pretty obvious, God. I'm asking you to kill me. Straightforward enough. I'm here for you to slay me. God does all that powerful stuff, right? The mountains, there's crumbling going on. There's earthquakes. There's fire. And then he asks him again, so what are you doing here? Well, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill you. I I just sent fire and earthquake and... What are you doing here? You see what God's asking Elijah, right? Why aren't you back there doing your job? I'm God. Oh, Jezebel's trying to kill me. But God sent fire from heaven. Who's more powerful? Get back to work. Now, That's not a brushing it off thing, but it is better for us to die. To die by Jezebel's hand or whatever the equivalent might be, proclaiming God and his gospel. And using those gifts he has given us, than languishing in a closet. We need to to get back to work. That's hard. And again, there's that medical side that comes in. Some of your depression, maybe maybe you need to interact with a doctor about how you can get to the point where you can even think about getting out and getting back to work. But getting back to work is helpful. In fact, many believers have found that when they focus on serving God actively, their depression is Bearable. Not gone, but more bearable. More bearable. As we stumble along seeking to serve God, we may find that our energies increase in serving God and neighbor. Let's replace that word serving. In loving God and neighbor. And so I would encourage you, if you're struggling with spiritual depression, especially pursue works of mercy. If one of the struggles we have with depression is self-importance, looking inward and being depressed, then surely looking outward is the best solution. Three of the correctives today have been looking outward and upward to God. But the fourth is to look outward at neighbor. And I've had a couple of people over the years tell me, uh, I've, for example, advised this. Maybe your depression is tied to being a shut-in and stuck at home, as some of you on the other side of the camera are today and have been for far too long. And there is an important work of mercy that can be done thanks to technology, and that is praying with and for others. And I've had a couple of people over the years take me up on that challenge when they're depressed and call up someone else in the church and ask how they can pray for that person. And part of the recommendation is don't bring yourself up at all. If they ask how you're doing, you can share briefly that you're discouraged. But if they don't even ask, 
Don't bring it up yourself. Just ask, how can I pray for you? And then pray with them. I've had a couple of people say, I'm starting to have better assurance these days. I don't feel as discouraged anymore. Why? Because we weren't created to stare at our own navels. That's not why God created us. And it's not why he has gifted us. He's given us gifts for the good of others and for his glory. And so in our discouragement, we should get to work, get to work. One of the most depressed days I've had as, uh, since becoming a pastor, I got a phone call partway through the day and Mary Ellen Hansen said, we really need this gutter fixed. And so I changed clothes drove over there, and I have a fear of heights, but they had the ladder up to the gutter, and it needed fixing. And um, Howard, Howard made Mary Ellen drag a chair out, and he had it put right where if I fell off the ladder, I would not only break my own leg, but kill Howard probably in the process. And he sat there, and I wanted to get my drill and just reattach the, the gutter to the house using technology, and, and he wanted me to use an, an awl and a screwdriver. And so I did that. And he told me stories the whole time about times he'd been up on heights. I wasn't as depressed at the end of the day. What a blessing from God that is, that as we seek to serve him and others, he will often make our struggles bearable. So, again, all of these correctives are to look away from self. That's the big thing when we're depressed. When we're sinning against God by looking only at self. Love of God. Love of neighbor. Stop saying to yourself, I've sunk to the depths. Remind yourself. Remind yourself you're still not there if you're in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ above. Look at Christ, the one who suffered in your place. Look at Christ, your Redeemer God, who sends forth his grace and peace upon your life. Look to the Father in heaven, the provider of all good things. And then look for a neighbor to bless. Let's pray.